Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 23rd, 2023, and my guest is economist Omer Moav of Reichman University and the University of Warwick. He is the host of the Hebrew language podcast Osim Cheshbon, and he is the author with Yoram Meshar and Luigi Pascali of The Origin of the State, Land Productivity or Appropriability, which was published last year in the Journal of Political Economy and is the subject of our conversation today. Omer, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you, Russ. Now, your paper is an attempt to understand where hierarchy and the state come from. And it's uh, an incredibly creative and ambitious work. And I want to start with a question you don't really deal with in the paper, because in papers like this, you don't deal with these things. But that is, what do you mean by the state? You know, I was telling my son about this upcoming podcast. He said the state, what do you mean like the state? You know, economists use it to mean a certain thing. For non-economists, non-academics, what do you mean by the state and what do you mean by hierarchy? Uh, well, okay. I mean, it is a relevant question, of course. Um, and it is well-defined when we go to the empirical part of the paper because then there's data and data sets tend to be uh, well-defined. Um, however, w- what we care about, uh, and maybe that's the difference between economists and political scientists or uh, anthropologists, is not the definitions, but the main ideas. So, so in our view, a state is an organization in which there is a strong elite which controls what happens more or less and taxes the masses. That's a state. So when Income flows from the masses, historically farmers, to the central state, and the state could do stuff with this income, like provide law and order, military, attack others, uh, build pyramids, whatever. And some of it, the pyramid part is for the benefit of the elite, uh, presumably, the the sometimes would be called confiscation confiscatory taxation, but other times it's going to provide what economists mean by public goods. You called it law and order, but it would be some power to police, some power to maybe some modes of transportation, clearing roads, and so on. When we think about ancient times, which of course we have a very imperfect picture, and one of the challenges of this paper and part of the creativity of it is how you try to get at that. When we think about ancient times, we think about the transition from say, hunter-gatherers to agriculture. So somebody is used to run around with a, a spear, and now they're running around with a hoe or a seeds or some kind of agricultural implement. Uh, where's the state? I mean, we're, I'm a farmer now. What's this, what does that mean, a state? Like, I can think about ancient Egypt. But when I think about this sort of this transition period, 
in these very early days, how might it have mutated from nothing to something? Yeah, so first, I'm pretty sure it was a very gradual process, but it's an interesting point that you raise and very important one, which is that the state emerged and or I would say in stages, more complex hierarchies emerged, eventually states following the transition from hunting, gathering to farming, the so-called Neolithic uh, revolution. And and that's actually an important question. Why is it that following the Neolithic Revolution, we uh, see the rise of these complex hierarchies and states? Uh, and part of what we do is in this paper is actually refute the existing theory. And, and in that sense, this is what makes this paper, I think, really important on the one hand side, on the other hand side, we we had a very hard time to publish it because uh, when you uh, refute existing theories where many researchers are um, committed to, uh, invested in, then they give you a very hard time as uh, referees. So the paper, we really suffered, but eventually we're really happy uh, that it was published in the Journal of Political Economy. I should mention, this is one of the top, top journals in economics. And luckily the editor in this journal actually went against the negative and hostile referee. Well, it, um, it's, now, yeah. it's ironic because uh, I just taped I just recorded an episode that hasn't gone, hasn't been made public yet, Omer, where we talk about the, the perilous path of uh, of peer review and and referee reports and how strange it is that if peer review was really a successful enterprise, when your paper was rejected, it would be over. You'd have to write something else. But instead, in, in academic life, you send it to a different journal. Now you happen to send it to one of the personally. I think the top journal in economics. I went to the University of Chicago. I'm totally biased. Uh, but you're giving us an example of how strange this process is. You're saying that the, the peers who reviewed the paper didn't like it so much, but the editor eh, he didn't agree. But I'm curious, relevant. Well, you know, Rob, Russ, sorry, you know, Russ, if you, if you open this, I could <laughs> talk for at least an hour about and provide many examples of how awkward and I would say even corrupt uh, and like a mafia-wise, uh, this process is to a large extent. But, you know, talking about the mafia, let, let me just say something which is really important back to the paper. You ask, what is a state? How did it come to emerge? And I think that uh, today we tend to think, especially in liberal democracies, that the state is this uh, benevolent organization that we pay taxes, but there is this contract that the state gives us in return stuff, all the pub public goods and so on and so forth. But uh, historically, I think that the better view of a state is, uh, as uh, Mansur Olson published in his uh, 93 book uh, uh, article, uh, is, is just uh, uh, roving bandits turning stationary. So a state is a transition from random crime to organized crime. And historically, I think that's a very accurate description. So the state is a powerful elite that could tax the masses and take care of its own good. 
That doesn't mean that this is bad for the subject because you should compare, you know, I ask people, is it good to have a mafia organization control your life? Well, yes, if the alternative is just random crime. Okay, so it's, it's in a sense, it was a win-win transition to some extent, but this is debatable. So when you think about that, uh, the roving versus stationary bandit, if I'm a hunter a band of hunter-gatherers and we have a good kill, we, we kill a, a couple large animals and we're excited and someone comes along and takes them, and then we move. We don't, we don't want to stay in the same place. We want the bandits to have to find us again. We hope we can find a place where the animals are and the bandits aren't. But once you are in agriculture, you're stationary. You can't move. And you do become vulnerable to uh, theft. And the the bandit who used to track you down in the field hunting now knows where you are and they become stationary. And that's the, the stationary band that is the Mansur Olson model. And of course, there's a temptation for the ignorant bandit to take all your crops, burn down your house and, and move on. Uh, but the bandit realizes at some point that, you know, it's not a bad thing. If I leave something for the farmer, then next year they can continue to farm and I'll get some more next year. So it's not the bandit that we see in the movies who who takes all the gold from the from the uh, stagecoach. Rather, it's a um, there's a symbiotic relationship there uh, when the bandit becomes self interested in the well being of the farmer, and that's why it's not as as evil in terms of impact as it might otherwise be. Yeah, I mean, it's just like modern mafia in the sense that what do they do? They they charge for protection. I mean, it's not just really protection from the, themselves. You pay them not to attack you. That's mainly part of the deal. But they also protect you from others. And that's the, the organized crime. And, and organized crime is a more efficient outcome than these roving bandits that just take everything and burn your house. But Raz, maybe we should go a step back or move into, okay, so what are we saying in this paper uh, that is new? And uh, to say that, I need to first explain briefly, at least, the conventional theory. Now, when I say conventional theory, this is something really, really huge. You go back 200 years, you, you read Adam Smith, even thinkers before Adam Smith. You read, uh, and they tell the same story, more or less. So, And you look at the papers and books today that deal with the emergence of hierarchies and states. It's always the same, very, almost always, I should be careful, the same uh, a variant of the following story. The transition to farming allowed increased output. Farmers could produce more food than hunter-gatherers. And with more food, they could actually produce surplus. So more food than they need for their own consumption. And this surplus is a prerequisite for taxation and the emergence of states. So the story is the farmers produce surplus. Once there is this surplus, someone could take it away. It could be roving bandits, but it could be stationary bandits. And here you go. You have hierarchies, organized crime turn into uh, chiefdoms and states and so on and so forth. And then there are variants. Is it a benevolent state or is it just a predatory state? These are details. Now, 
we started working on this uh, about 17 years ago and just published less than a year ago. So it was quite a long process. And it, it started with a process of thinking about the issue. And the main thought we have is that, you know, if you read Thomas Maltos and you read this story, there is a contradiction. If Maltos is right, then there is no surplus because population will adjust to eliminate any surplus. That's the basic Malthusian theory, higher fertility if there is a life above subsistence. And as a result of increased population, uh, income per capita declines back to the level of subsistence, meaning no surplus. So that's the main flaw we found with this uh, literature. But in addition to that, here is a thought. Let's do the following um, uh, thought experiment. Imagine a village that, uh, say, grows some kind of uh, cereal, uh, you know, uh, barley, wheat, rice. Now, what is typical about cereal is that it is seasonal. So the harvest typically takes place within a very short time in the year. And then even if there is no surplus, the farmers have to store it for their survival throughout the year. Now, suppose a tax collector arrives after the harvest is finished, all the crop is stored. The tax collector arrives with a little army, of course. I mean, imagine, think of, for instance, ancient Egypt. A tax collector on behalf of the pharaoh arrives to the village and says, I came to tax you, give me 20% of your crop. Well, the head of the village could say, sorry, I don't have any surplus this year. What would the tax collector say? Oh, my apologies. I will try my luck next year. Of course not. Even today, you cannot tell the government, sorry, I don't have any surplus. So, of course, in historical times, this claim is ridiculous. I, you don't have surplus, so what? I see the grain here. I'll just take 20%. Oh, but some people would die. Well, who cares? We're talking about history. Who cares? Today, in many places, people don't care about death of innocent people. So, of course, historically, this was the case. So, this just simple thought experiment illustrates that the idea that surplus is a prerequisite for taxation is just wrong. But in addition to that, let's do another thought experiment and think about a village that actually has a lot of surplus. But the surplus is not a grain, but it's like a root of or a tuber. Think of cassava, for instance. Cassava is a good example because as long as it's a root that is in the ground, and as long as it is in the ground, it's, it stays. It, it's very well uh, stored. But once the farmer takes the root out of the ground, within a few days, it rots. Now, what, what would do a tax collector if there's lots of uh, cassava in the ground, you know, how do you move it from the farming area to build, say, pyramids or to provide the military? It's just impossible. So you see, surplus is also not a sufficient condition. What you really need is not surplus, but a food that is easily taxed. And that's the main claim we make. Now, we're not – yeah, go ahead. I was ahead. going to say, <clears throat> uh, you know, when I read that, uh, you have, there's a little additional piece you have to add, and we'll get to that in a minute, but I, I'm done. 
it's a really great paper. <laughs> it's really interesting. Um, you're going to, to try to show that that's historically relevant is quite challenging. And we'll talk generally about how you try to do that. It's hard to do and you concede as much. But the, 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 the fundamental idea that storability is crucial is profound. The other thing you have to add, of course, is that cassava can be grown throughout the year. You can grow it at different times, harvest it at different times. So the cassava grows or the potato and you eat it, then you plant some more and you eat it or you've planted some more in between. And it's a, it's occasionally showing up and you're eating it. Whereas the grain shows up once and you have to store it. So it's wonderful that it can be stored, but it's horrible because it can also be taxed. But the cassava has this fabulous, I mean, it's fascinating that I, you, I think you're the, first people to notice this is that it's horrible cassava because you can't store it, but it's fantastic because it can't be taxed. And so it's a, um, now the next question would be a very blunt, simple question, not subtle. But, but let me just, because I want to be really accurate and not to take credit to myself, which is unjust. So the idea that it's easier to tax grains than cassava or other roots and tubers is not ours. We're not the first to make it. The contribution of our paper is to say that the surplus argument is wrong. And that's so you, I could point, I mean, James Scott is famous for that with his uh, two bestsellers uh, and not being uh, the art of not being governed and against the grain. But in fact, he was not. He got a lot of credit, but there's already uh, researchers from the 70s and 80s that made similar arguments. But the difference is that they basically took the standard conventional theory about surplus. But they say, look, surplus is important, but it should be surplus of something that is taxable, meaning storage is required and it is storable. And our contribution, our theoretical contribution is to say surplus argument is wrong. You don't need surplus. Moreover, of course, the main thing that we do is we go to the data and then we really prove our uh, arguments. As best you can. But, but the, of course, the, um, the part that's interesting to me is that you have a choice as a farmer. You could often, not always, I assume there's there's land productivity issues, but you could choose to grow cassava or you can choose to grow grain. And the next inside of the paper, which I think is fantastic, is that it's the gap, it's the relative productivity of grain versus tubers that's important because if 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 you can grow a lot more grain relative to cassava or potatoes even though it's going to get taxed it's still worth it and and that's a choice that i assume not always but sometimes or often a farmer has to make and that, and and that's fantastic because that's i mean that's economics it shows you the the choice that the farmer has to make and and you presume which is always a good starting place that that farmers are going to try to do something that's good for them, uh, as opposed yes, to, indeed, <laughs> as opposed to say they have a religious or cultural love of the tuber or whatever it is. That pretty much uh, this is going to be a, a central issue. So, my, so my next question is: first of all, what part of the world can you grow tubers in? 
and versus Graham. Oh. <laughs> and what part of the world okay. can you grow both? Because that would be, is that everywhere or almost everywhere? Yeah, so so there are maps in the paper, and uh, I, unfortunately, I, I cannot, I don't have them at hand now to show you, but there are very large parts of the world in which it, only roots and tubers are available, large parts of the world that only cereals are available, but large parts of the world in which both are available. And, and indeed, our, our theoretical model has uh, farmers uh, who could choose between roots and tubers or uh, cereals, but the productivity difference is what matters. So cereals, also in the data, in our model, are more productive than roots and tubers. If roots and tubers are more productive than cereals, that's an obvious choice. Then, of course, I grow the crop that gives me more and is not taxed. Uh, but then there is this trade-off you described. And indeed, when uh, cereals are more productive, sufficiently more productive, and there is a government, it is a hierarchy, it is, if you wish, an organized crime that could commit to a reasonably low tax. And then the farmers say, okay, if the tax is sufficiently low, it's a win-win. I will grow the cereal. And the government would tax me, but it's still, I'm still better off. Of course, if these are just ro roving bandits out there, I could still just stick to the less productive roots and tubers. And I, I just want to bring in one of my favorite, you know, insights of economics, which is that through much of history, um, life is not zero sum, it's negative sum. So if I'm growing something, uh, or I have livestock, or I have something valuable uh, that can be taken from me, the potential that it can be taken from me, which is a zero-sum thing on the surface. In other words, you take my grain, you have it, I don't. Total amount of grain doesn't change, in theory. But of course, in reality, it does change because it changes the incentives to grow grain. And that's why it's negative sum, the, the, at least at the early stage where the banditry is just taking it as opposed to providing things of value to the farmer in the form of public goods. But the other part that people forget is that the potential for my stuff to be stolen means that I will spend resources to prevent it. And that is the negative sum part. So if I want to get rich in the old days, I take your stuff. That's not net zero sum. That's negative sum because that means two things. You're going to spend real resources to keep me from stealing it. And you're going to avoid producing really wonderful things that you can't protect because I'll just steal them if I'm stronger than you. So I either have to have my own private army or locks or, you know, hide things. I have to expend resources. So theft is not zero sum. It's negative sum. And the power of the state in these early versions, I assume, where it was mainly just taking stuff but leaving enough for you to keep you somewhat whole is very costly because it means it reduces my incentive to grow as much grain as I might. It depends. It could go the other way too. It's complicated. But certainly it could induce me to be less productive. I could grow tubers instead. And the last thing I just want to clarify is that because there are places that only grow grain and because there are only places that can grow tubers, your theory has a prediction, which is that the state should not emerge in the tuber places and should emerge in the grain places. Also, so, okay, the prediction is actually stronger than that. 
because even in places in which you have both uh, grains and tubers, uh, if the tubers are sufficiently productive, the farmers would choose to grow uh, tubers. Let me uh, just add another issue, which is since you raised it, the differences between regions is, is really a puzzling question. So why is it that some places that adopted farming developed these sophisticated hierarchies leading to the early city-states of Mesopotamia and then the central state of Egypt, but other places like uh, New Guinea, which adopted farming at the same time as Egypt, just stayed with this uh, nothing much, small tribes that keep on fighting each other. What is the conventional story? Well, lowland productivity. In areas, mainly tropical areas, uh, where you could see the very strong correlation, tropical areas are the areas in which states uh, fail and don't function well until to, uh, still today, and historically they didn't exist. Um, these are areas in which land productivity is low, according to the conventional story. So with low land productivity, no surplus, no state. Now what we say is a different story. In areas in which land is highly productive, but it is roots and tubers or other stuff that is hard to tax, like taro or bananas or fruit and vegetable, other fruit and vegetables, these are places that hierarchies would not emerge. Now, we call it uh, in the curse of plenty because eventually... In the short run, although in the short run, the farmer is better off growing something that cannot be taxed. But that means the state does not emerge. And in the long run, these are worse places because states, even if these are mafia type states, are better off for economic development and the welfare of the population than just random roving bandits or small tribes that fight each other all the time. And of course, once we move to a more democratic liberal state, then obviously economic development is better. And you know, the key thing, uh, without getting into the debate about what uh, a modern state should do, should it provide uh, health and education and everything, or just law and order? Well, just law and order is crucial. We need the protection of property rights. And these regions in which states did not emerge have very weak institutions, weak protection of property rights, and this is a curse. And so, again, the curse of plenty. And, and that comes back to my point about you know theft being a negative-sum game. It's very hard to escape uh, low levels of well-being, material well-being, uh, if you don't have secure property rights. And, uh, well, end of, end, end of story. Now, before we go into some of the empirical challenges of trying to assess whether your theory is right, I have to raise an awkward question, <clears throat> which would be, why should I care about this? I mean, okay, there was this goofy theory once that it was land productivity that led to the state. Why should I care? I mean, I'm, I care because I'm, I care. I'm interested. <laughs> but, but in general, when we, when we think about these um, attempts to understand pre-modern history, where you know often you get involved in what I call just so stories. You know, there's a narrative that emerges after the fact that's consistent with some of the things. And people cherry pick. There's, there's the thousand books we won't name. 
that that try to explain this 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 arc of of human development from hunter gatherer to agriculture to the city state to the modern times. And I don't know, we care a lot about it. I think for all kinds of reasons, but I'm curious why you think we should care. Why is this work important? Is it important? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so suppose I will tell you that a research on ancient history could actually contribute to economic growth. Then obviously it's important, right? But then I could ask, but why is economic growth important? You'd say, oh, well, that increases welfare. But I, then I have a shortcut. If this is interesting, you read something interesting. We are, as human beings, we are curious about our history. So we enjoy reading stuff that helps us understand what happened in the past. Why do people do research on dinosaurs? Who cares? Well, we care. That's a matter of fact. We care about what happened in the past. We care about what happens in, you know, remote stars and, and so on and so forth. But but let me just say another thing is that uh, there is a lot of research that shows the persistence of institutions. And in this sense, I think the paper is not just about the emergence of states. It also helps understand why some states today are failing states, why other are, others are successful. And, and a lot of the economic research on economic institutions just highlights the quality of institutions. But in a large extent, I would say, is not very successful in going to the root cause of better or worse institutions. And I think this paper is really important in understanding that. So there, there is a, um, a book called The Dawn of Everything uh, by David Graeber and David Wengro, which um, uh, I've thought about reading. I, I started, I've looked at it. Their claim uh, for what it's worth is, I, I think, is that getting the pre-modern history right helps us imagine what is possible now. So if, for example, it turns out that the evolution of the state is not necessary for civilization and growth and flourishing and so on, maybe there are ways of organizing our economy or our government that are that we can't seemingly imagine because we're so burdened by the status quo of the present. So I think that would be another argument. I think um, I think your work forces the reader to think about what government's actually doing, right, when, when it taxes. We have a lot of narratives about it, romantic narratives in some cases. And I think in your case and mine, we're a little less romantic about the state. Uh, you know, we look at it and say, you know, maybe, maybe this is not a health, healthy way to look at it. And I think when you read about the history and you try to understand uh, why it evolved the way it did, you you can open your mind to other possibilities. I would just add that as another uh, another value. Okay, that that's an interesting take on that. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure I'm, con I'm fully convinced by their argument, but I could say that... You know, if you think of really these questions, why do we have in most of Western countries, states, governments that control 
about half of the income, you know, government spending. Why is it so high? And if you go back to the 19th century, it was extremely low compared to like 10, 15%. Then it jumps within a short time to 45, 50%. What happened there? So there are various stories. I don't want to go into them. Democracy and the demand for more services. You know, I, I ask myself, if, it's, if a democracy wants more taxes, obviously a dictatorship wants more taxes, right? So wh why? What? And, and, and uh, of course, it's not the transition from uh, tubers to grains in the early 20th century, but it is uh, income tax, accounting, large firms. And it's a similar argument because it's taxability. So once the economy is organized in a way that it's easier to tax, governments would tax more. And then ex post, we give it some rationalization from a, a benevolent point of view, but in, in a large extent, government tax because they can. Yeah, well, we had a recent episode on uh, the strange world of cryptocurrency in Argentina. And it I I suggest that I think this was such an alien idea to most listeners, but not to most economists, that when the state infrastructure is um uh sketchy, not not well designed and not respected by the citizens the government no longer has an easy way to fund its activities, whether they're lovely activities or not so lovely, you know, whether it's confiscatory taxation or whether it's to provide things that actually many of the citizens want. And in many of those situations, the government resorts to inflation as a way to to raise money for its activities. And I think non-economists, outsiders, everyday people look at that and go like, well, that's stupid. Inflation's really destructive. Why would you do that? The answer is because it's better than the alternative. It's like your mafia point. Yeah, the mafia is horrible, but that's <laughs> there are advantages to it compared to what is always the right question. So anyway, I think that's uh, that's just another way to say what, what you're saying. So <clears throat> you have this claim. It's a it's a lovely claim, and again, as I say, I, as as a uh, uh, most of my economic intuition. I'm done. I love this paper. I love the idea of it. Uh, but it would be nice if it were true. <laughs> so so, so you do your best and, and you concede early on. Uh, you have a beautiful um, uh, paragraph where you say, um, we acknowledge that none of our empirical investigations provide foolproof for our thesis. Very rare sentence. In a in a economics published economics paper, uh, but that's always the case. But you admitted it, which is great. So the the challenge is is that you have this this claim. It's about the past, and of course, it's about relative productivity of different kinds of products, agricultural products, and a lot of those products don't exist anymore. We have the modern versions of them. So talk about some of the things that you tried to do and did do, try to get at. The, valid, the validity of the claim. So, okay. So let me first just clarify to those who are not uh, researchers in economics that suffer from uh, what happened to our profession. So what really happened over the last 20, 30 years that just having a good idea 
and a nice theory and some data that support it is not sufficient. And in fact, to a large extent, unfortunately, our profession uh, even lost interest in logical claims and theory. And today, what people want to do is not understand the world, but know the facts. And this is the identification revolution. So to identify causal effects. Now, don't get me wrong. Identifying a causal effect is extremely useful and important. But we should remember this is the mean, not the goal. The goal is to learn something about reality. So now, uh, when uh, people do randomized control trials, and in that sense, economics became like a true science, you take a random a sample and you randomly allocate treatment to one half and the other half is the control group and everything else being equal, you could really identify the causal effect of the treatment. But of course, questions that could be quite important or at least very interesting, one cannot randomize treatment. They cannot randomize countries with roots and tubers, you know, that just doesn't work. So what we do instead of one perfect uh, experiment, we look at various data sets and we try to show that we look at different data sets, different ways to uh, proxy for roots and tubers, different periods of time and different uh, statistical uh, methods and to show consistency. And the end result is that in all our specifications, once we control for the type of crop, the surplus theory has zero uh, statistical significance. L let me just clarify what I just said now. So the experiment we do or the, the data analysis that we do repeatedly with different data sets. The main idea is to have this variable, which is some proxy of hierarchy or states. And that would be the what we call the left-hand side variable, the variable of interest. And we run a statistical test or a horse race uh, using a linear regression on many variables, but the horse race is between two competing variables. One is some proxy for land productivity, and another is a proxy for cereals. What is the main thing we use to start with would be data from the Food and, and Agriculture Organization, which has estimates for any area in the world, what would be the output if you grow there potatoes, cassava, all the main roots and tubers and all the main cereals. So we take their data, we translate the predicted output to calories. So it's comparable, right? A ton of tubers is not a ton of cereals. So you need to translate it to calories. We're not the first to do it. And then we calculate for each unit of land or unit of observation, depending what we have on the other side of the equation, what is our units? For instance, just to uh, to set ideas, we look at the uh, ethnographic atlas, we which has some 200 societies around the world uh, with data about their hierarchy, their location, what kind of crops they grow, if at all. 
Uh, and so we look at their location, where they're physically located. And then we, for the land they're on, on, we calculate the advantage of cereals over roots and tubers. That would be our proxy, whether they grow cereals or not. And we calculate just land productivity. That would be the maximum calories they could produce based on this FAO, Food and Agriculture Organization, data. Now, if you just run a naive test of the conventional theory, you could actually see that there is a very strong correlation between land productivity and hierarchy. But once you throw in a control for cereals, it kills the positive effect of productivity on hierarchy, and you see a positive effect of cereals on hierarchy. I say effect and not correlation because we don't use the data on whether they actually grow cereals or not. We use a proxy, an instrument for cereals. So it's something exogenous. It's, it's a geographical measure of the uh, suitability of land for cereals. So that's the most simple uh, empirical exercise we do. Very strong results. A shows that indeed, when land is more suitable for cereals, that's the place farmers grow cereals. And when land is not very suitable for cereals or where tubers are similarly suitable, farmers grow tubers. And then the next stage is, indeed, this is highly correlated with the emergence of hierarchies. But that's just one test, and it's a cross-section. So, so, of course, one could have many uh, concerns about the validity of that. So, we cannot alleviate all these concerns. Do we do? Let's do a different test. Here we do something which is quite interesting, which uh, alleviates all concerns about a cross-section uh, analysis. And what we do is uh, we look at the change to hierarchies, which is basically the emergence of new states following the Colombian exchange. So when Christopher Columbus discovers America, uh, following this discovery, we have the so-called Colombian exchange. What is that? Crops. And not just crops, also uh, disease and other animals uh, move from the old world, which is Europe, uh, Asia, and Africa, to the new world, Americas. And also, they move in the other way. So, for instance, uh, cassava, a, a very important root, not in most Western societies, but in Africa today, cassava is one of the two major sources of calories. The other is corn. Both of them come from the New World, did not exist in Africa before the Colombian exchange. Uh, so corn did not exist in the Old World. Cassava did not exist. Sweet potato, uh, white potato did not exist. Uh, what, on the other hand side, in the New World, they only, from the major cereals, they only had corn. So with the Colombian exchange, uh, we get the transition of uh, rice and wheat and barley all go going to uh, the Americas. So what do we do now? There is a different data set which looks at countries, the borders of countries today. And this data set is over time. So every 50 years, 
they, based on reading archaeology and history, they define whether this piece of land is a state, a chiefdom, or just a tribe. Okay, so we take the data as is, and we ask, could the change that happened in land productivity following the Colombian exchange, right? So land productivity increases in many places because suddenly you have crops that are more productive. So could that explain the rise of countries? Answer, no. It cannot. It cannot. It doesn't. Well, maybe I shouldn't say it cannot. It doesn't. So you look at the data, you see that a lot of areas, land productivity improved, but that doesn't explain the emergence of hierarchies. Whereas the increase in the advantage of cereals over roots and tubers, this does explain. So again, it's a very different em empirical exercise using panel estimates, so over time, rather than just a cross-section, using a different data set of, uh, of hierarchies, a different period of time, exactly the same results. Not land productivity, but the suitability for cereals. So it's the crop that matters. But that's not enough. So we do more than that <laughs> because you really need to convince the skepticals and especially people who want to protect the uh, theory they're engaged and, and invested in. So we want to go and, and we want to go further back in history, closer to the point in time in which the transition really happened. So now you might say, well, the Food and Agriculture Organization data is based on modern crops. The modern crops are not the same as the historical crops because the mother of the wheat 10,000 years ago is not the wheat today. I mean, the, <laughs> there was so much uh, genetic breeding by farmers over time that it's a very different crop. And this goes on, you know, you could mention the green revolution. So that is just 60, 70 years ago and, and a huge change, genetic change in crops to make them more suitable for human beings. So uh, instead of that, we use an alternative proxy, uh, actually two alternatives proxy. One is, is quite simple. This was existing data. So farming started uh, according to archaeologists, they identified 20 different, something like 20 different points in the world in which farming started. So it didn't start in one point and spread everywhere. There are 20 centers of domestication. So now here is an interesting proxy. The proximity of each unit of land to a center of domestication. What our data shows is that what really matters for the emergence of hierarchy is proximity to a center of domestication of a cereal. Roots and tubers do not matter. Simply have no positive effect on the proximity to roots and tubers do not have an effect. Now here what we do, uh, since we go back thousands of years, it's not states anymore that we look at. The, the, the data we look at is archaeology. So we basically draw lines on the globe. Every one degree, north, uh, north, south, every one degree, east, west, and we get these uh, chunks of land. 
And for each chunk of land of this size, we first look at the proximity to a center of domestication, and then we count stuff that we find in this uh, unit of land. Stuff that indicates hierarchy, like ancient cities, temples, castles, pyramids, quarries, and so on. And we ask, what explains these findings? And the answer is cereals, not land productivity. And the last thing that we do is another data set that we actually built. And that took us more than a year with, uh, uh, with cooperation, with the diversity uh, organization. Oh, I, I forgot the exact name, sorry. But uh, a, 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 an organization that uh, looks at the distribution of wild plants in the world. And the question we ask, and, and that's we're the first to do this. Uh, Jared Diamond in his book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, exactly talks about uh, crops that are available for domestication, but he doesn't have the data. Or then there was some research done later with some data, but the, the, whole, the entire research had data points, which is continents. And what we have is very detailed data. We know where exactly in the world, what's the spread of the genetic parent or genetically related uh, 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 crops, wild crops, wild relatives of each domesticated crop. So we know where the uh, wild relatives of wheat are, well, where the wild relatives of, uh, of barley, of cassava, all these uh, major staple crops today. And then again, we uh, divide the world to these blocks uh, as we do, and we count archaeological findings. And here is what we find. If you divide the world to four types of units of land, one, only cereals are available for domestication. The other, only roots and tubers are available for domestication. Then, of course, there is none and both. What do we find? Well, hierarchies emerge where cereals are available, but roots and tubers are not. Places that only roots and tubers are available, you don't see the emergence of hierarchies. Places that both are available are very similar to places that only roots and tubers are available. And that's exactly the theory we discussed earlier, that farmers, once they have the choice, they prefer to grow roots and tubers and they enjoy the protection that they provide. But they provide, but this is the curse of plenty. But of course, there's, as we have alluded to earlier, there's the possibility that they they chose roots and tubers for other reasons. They they liked having not having to do one time storage. There were rats. I mean, there, as you point out in the paper, very honestly, there's a lot of what we call confounding factors. But you've done what I would say is heroic work, and I want to put that in perspective again, referring to this meta question we we mentioned briefly about how science advances. I, I shouldn't call it science. How published academic work advances in, in our field. So you confess that you've been working on this for 17 years, which is consistent, again, with this previous episode of, of Adam uh, Mastriani, where, where a lot of times, again, I think unbeknownst to 
normal people, the idea that a peer review takes a long time is is kind of shocking. Uh, you think people just oh, take a look at it, verify it, check it, yes or no, up or down. But no, it takes a long time. So some of that 17 years was the paper was rejected. They suggested. Well, I mean, 10 years was just work before first submitted. So then you submitted then, it. Yeah, and they said, well, but you yes. didn't look at this. So you did. And they still rejected it. And But eventually it, it got published. So my question is, at some point, you presented this paper at an academic workshop. You went to another university from your own. You started your own, perhaps. But eventually you started sharing this work. And of course, the people whose work was challenged by your findings, didn't. many of them didn't like it. They pushed back. You know, Thomas Kuhn and the Structure of Scientific Revolutions, I think I have this right, basically argued that, you know, science advances through death. <laughs> people whose, whose, whose views are challenged by the new paradigm, until they die off, uh, it's hard to make progress. I think that the word, the, the saying is that the science advances from funeral to funeral. Funeral to funeral, right. <laughs> So, but you know, unfortunately, when they die, they already have all their um, uh, intellectual offspring that still oh, protect true. the old theorem. It's tricky. <laughs> but your paper was unpublished for long enough that you could have benefited from the death of some of your opponents. I don't want. We don't need, need to name any names. But my serious question is: um, a lot of people probably didn't like this paper from the beginning, and they still don't like it. Uh, what was that like? Were you were you discouraged? Um, you know, I've known you for a while. I think we've been talking about this paper off and on for for probably about ten years of the seventeen. What um, what kind of reaction did it get in the academic setting? Not just from referees, but when you presented it publicly, did did people like it? Not like it? What kind, tell me what happened? So I I, I and my co-authors we presented it in many, many seminars and conferences, most people were really liked it and were actually even enthusiastic about it. Great news. But then here is the problem. And I actually had a, I had a rant on Twitter about that, which was quite, I think, a lot of, got a lot of attention. I made two comments. The first one, and now I actually typically ask uh, young uh, economists, could you tell me what is good research? And, you know, people just give very different answers. Oh, good research, the, youngers, the younger generation. Good research is a research in which I could really identify a causal effect. And I said, mm, that's interesting. I, of course, completely disagree because that's not the goal. And here is the way I define good research. Good research is research that significantly changed your priors about an important topic. Of course, if a paper carefully identifies a causal effect in a way you are, were not aware of it previously, then that could significantly change your priors about an important question. But you could have a paper that doesn't do a very careful identification, but still the combination of data and logical arguments makes a significant change of one's prior beliefs about an important topic. And that's exactly the paper we have now. Of course, 
we don't don't just show some correlations. We do a very careful empirical exercise with causal identification, and it's very robust. We control for all the confounding, blah, blah, blah. Of course, one could only refute theories. You can never prove a theory. Uh, but a, a lot of referees from mainly, I guess, the identification uh, uh, mafia, we're just completely ignoring the big question that, wow, what a paper. This is so important and interesting, which is a lot of what other people say. But they just say, oh, you know, this paper tries to identify the effect of land productivity versus cereals on the emergence of hierarchies. Uh, they ignore completely the logical arguments, the beauty of the argument, the importance of the argument, the originality, and then they just have a very long list of concerns. Now, here's an interesting thing. If you uh, uh, tell someone, look, I have a data set that shows uh, that uh, the effect of X on Y is positive. And so, well, yeah, maybe it's right, maybe it's not. Okay. Here is another data set that also shows the same result. Does that strengthen your argument? Well, of course, statistically it does, right? No doubt. But for many referees, that just makes their list of concerns longer. <laughs> and, well, with a longer list of concerns, of course we reject the paper. So that was the one type of hostile or just maybe, I don't know if hostile, just I would say narrow-minded referees that were against us. The other was really the hostility. Now, we didn't see many of them in the seminars because if you're hostile, you typically hide it in a seminar to a large extent, but an anonymous referee could go full uh, hard into a paper hiding beyond behind anonymity. I think most of the really hostile referees were actually not economists. So an editor sees a paper which asks a question or refutes an important theory in political science would typically feel obliged to send the paper to one or two econo economists as referees, but also to a political science or a sociologist, an anthropologist. And these guys, it's a bad combination because A, they are hostile. B, in many cases, they don't really understand what we are doing. And, and so you see the report, they're not just hostile, they're also silly. Uh, in some cases, refer editors just say, look, I have this very negative report so, uh, or two negative reports, so I'm rejecting the paper. Uh, sometimes, unfortunately, they even say I was convinced, although I had uh, my own reading, I like the paper, but then this referee convinced me that it's not worth publishing. And I read this report and wow, it's just a silly report. The arguments are flawed anyway. Uh, luckily for us, uh, the editor in the JPE, uh, Ali Ortakshu, uh, actually went to a large extent against the referees. Uh, one referee stayed hostile and negative throughout the process. The other started lukewarm and eventually was convinced and became positive and the paper is published. And I think... I think they do not regret it. I think they're happy with the paper. Well, Chiang, we'll see. But um, <clears throat> just kidding. Uh, let's close with um, with one of the things that I 
thought about when I was reading this that that I think is um again it's not so um doesn't have a lot of policy implications, but it's part of being a human being. So I'm interested in it. And I think back to the interviews that I've done with with Rachel Loudon, who's a food historian. And you know, we've been throwing around the words tuber and cassava and wheat. These things um, are really not that friendly to the human digestive system. They're not just things we grow and eat the way we do when we think about a carrot, say. You, know, you grow a carrot, pick it up out of the ground, or if you're buying it at the store, you might rinse it off. You might not. You might peel it. You might not be eat it. Cassava, wheat, rice. These things take a lot of preparation to make them suitable for human consumption. And one of the things I liked about your paper is it makes you realize that, you know, I don't know really know how much we really truly understand about our pre-modern history of hunter-gathering and Dunbar groups of 47 people. I, I, I'm, I'm agnostic and I don't find it that interesting. But when I think about this evolution to agriculture and the rise of the city-state, Mesopotamia, Samaria, Egypt, and we start to think about those cultures, they're still affecting us today. Hunter-gatherers, maybe our genes are, from those days are still in us uh, when we see a tiger. But um, the, those other things are really part of our modern uh Existence, even though we don't think about it very often. And when I think about grain and the importance of grain, the storage aspect, the implication it might have had for our uh, evolution of government, uh, and, and just the whole challenge of, of subsisting and, and the idea of surplus, which is a miracle. Crazy. Anyway, I, I just like that. I'm just going to say it. You can respond to it, say whatever you want. But I think it's an important part of, of, of our humanity that's worth thinking about. I agree. I agree. Thanks. <laughs> My guest today has been Omar Omer Moav. Omer, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you very much for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.